State of Digital Publishing is creating a new publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with Insanul Ahmed, executive editor at Genius, on how to get into music journalism, blending community and editorial. Let's begin. Welcome back. Good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. How, how's your week been? Oh, it's been good. It's been exciting. Uh, you know, Eminem album is coming, so a lot of work to be done for us. Nice. I know he doesn't publish as much albums as often, so as soon as he drops something, everyone's covering it. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Just for everyone who doesn't know much about you, can you provide a bit of background about yourself and also about Genius? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, my name is uh, Insunul. You know, I'm a longtime journalist and writer. I got into journalism when I was in high school. I started writing for my school paper, and that kind of sparked my interest in it, and I've been writing about it ever since then, uh, writing about music ever since then. When I was in college, I had interned at Vibe, and that kind of started me on a professional path. And, you know, when I got out of college, I worked at Complex for about five, six years, really helped grow that brand. And in about 2016, I kind of felt like I had been there long enough. I wanted a new change of pace. So I joined Genius, where I've been working for about the past two years about. And yeah, I think a lot of people are familiar with Genius as a lyrics website, which is what we started out as, known for, you know, annotations in which, you know, people can explain lyrics. And started out basically as a tech startup. And in the last couple of years, especially since I've gotten here, we've really transitioned more into a more of a media company than a straight up tech company or sort of a maybe a hybrid where not only do we have our website where we have all these lyrics, when we have a community who annotates all these lyrics and who adds explanations and meanings about songs, but now we also have a wing that I'm involved with, which is the, we have an editorial site, we have a larger social media presence, and we have a much, much larger video presence where we interact with artists, get them to explain their music. We have several YouTube shows like Verified and Deconstructed where artists will come in and explain what went into their music, I'm more in charge of the editorial where we're covering new releases, we're covering breaking news on social. We're also promoting all these products that we're making and also engaging with our audience. And yeah, Genius has really expanded in the last few years from just being another lyric website to being a full-fledged media company with a lot of reach to a lot of artists. It's really interesting like how you guys have been able to combine the community aspect with the editorial. How did you guys like come to that conclusion? Does it, I guess it helps to first start off as a lyric website, but how did you progress? How do you think Genius progressed to that point of combining community and editorial? Oh yeah, that's a good point. Well, like I said, when the site first started out and it's been around since 2009, 2010, I'll say, I mean, I wasn't here for the early days of that, but yeah, you know, when it started out, it was rooted in being this hot, understand music. That was kind of the question that Tom and Alan, who founded the site, they started with like, here's a lyric that I like. What does it mean? I don't know what it means, but somebody knows what it means. Somebody fill it in. And it kind of started off kind of like the way Wikipedia is, where anyone can write it, anyone can update it. And as the site grew, we got moderators and editors and people who were more serious about filtering the site and just making it look, making the information in the annotations more professional and more presentable. That went on for several years until I think, like I said, a few years ago, we transitioned to a media company. And one of the reasons why is I think it became clear that although we have an amazing site and we have an amazing community that puts in so much effort 
and work into making the site. Just like I, I think Wikipedia is a good example of this too, where a lot, you know, the people who write on those stuff, they take a lot of time to edit these articles and, you know, update them and make sure they're correct and things like that. One thing that I think we realized was that although our site is great, it's a little difficult to navigate. And even for me, when I first used Genius, I had known about the site for years, but I didn't always actually do the annotations and editing and all those things. When I got more involved, I realized that, wait, this is difficult for the average person who's not a music fanatic, but is interested in music. And they're interested in knowing about music, but they don't know how to navigate this site. And I think the reason, the whole goal of our editorial strategy is there's all this great content on our site, but it's buried under layers of this website and these annotations and this community that's not easy or accessible for everyone to just jump right into. So what we need to do and what our strategy is for a lot of it is finding the best stuff and basically polishing all the gems. It's very much our site is very much a diamond in the rough kind of thing. Like I said, there's a lot of content that's on our site that's created by our community. Now, our community is great, but, you know, they're not professional journalists. They're not professional writers. They're young kids, mostly, who are big fans of Eminem or Rihanna or Kendrick Lamar or whoever the artist may be. And these people are writing stuff, but whatever they're making is not being seen by the wider audience who doesn't know how to access it. So what we do, as I think, on the, on the staff side is to take all that content sift through it, find the best stuff, and then sort of repackage it into something that's easily digestible and consumable by the wider and greater audience of fans of people, again, who are fans of Kendrick Lamar, fans of Eminem. These people have millions of fans all over the world, but not all of those people are going to learn how to navigate our site. So for us, we make it easy and kind of bring it to them. That's really interesting. I'd like to come back to that point after and tie back into your day-to-day roles and responsibilities, but let's take a step back. When people, I think, looking at it from a B2C, like a user perspective, like if someone usually wants to look around, updates around a specific artist and, or, or, yeah, a specific artist and, you know, they're usually associated with like a entertainment and news site or, you know, like a gossip site. How do you define music journalism and how did you come to the path of going to music journalism? I know you've explained it a bit in your background, but... Just, I'd like to really make it clear for everyone who doesn't know much about music journalism and differentiate it, if you can go down to that detail, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's funny. Yeah, this very much ties into, I think, one of the strategies that, and our, just our overall outlook of what, how we cover news of genius. And, you know, I'll take it back. Like I said, well, I started out writing about music when I was in high school. This is in 2004, 2005, and I actually remember the first thing, first article I wrote for for my high school newspaper was actually a review of Jay-Z's Black Album, which had come out at that time. I think it was 2003, in fact. At that time, obviously, the media landscape was very, very different. And to me, I saw criticism as the sort of holy grail of what music journalism was. It was people writing about album reviews, discussing whether the album was good or the album was bad, why you should buy it, why you shouldn't. In the last 10, 15 years, that entire idea is completely dead. I mean, I used to be, again, a kid like me. I grew up reading reviews. I loved reading reviews. I used to read five, six reviews of an album I liked from every different kind of organization just to see what everyone was saying, just to see what the consensus was. I don't even read reviews anymore. A lot of that has been decimated by, basically by Twitter, 
and the internet in general. You know, it used to be a time where if you wanted a, a critical opinion, you had to go to this critical person who almost like sitting in this ivory tower and works at Rolling Stone and gets to hear the album before you and he writes his you know, high-minded opinion of it. And then you're kind of left to decide whether or not you want to buy it or not. And that's something that is totally dead because a lot of that, all of that stuff has been destroyed by the internet because now, you know, there used to be a time it's like, well, should I buy this album or should I not? I don't know. Let me read a review and get an opinion. Now it's like, should I click on this or not to listen to it? Ah, I'll listen to it one time. If you're interested in an album today, you can just go on Spotify, go on Apple Music, go on YouTube and listen to it one time. You don't need someone to tell you whether or not your money is worth spending because you don't spend any money on it. So that's a big change that's happened in, in sort of music journalism. I mean, critical reviews still exist, but they're not nearly as important as they used to be. Nowadays, you know, the biggest music critic in America is a guy named The Needle Drop, who's not a trained journalist. He's a YouTube vlogger who shoots from his living room of like, hey, this is what I thought of this album. And that's increasingly how the game is, has become. So on a professional side, when I did actually start writing, like I said, when I started working at Complex, which was, this is in 2010, when I started covering artists, the sort of bread and butter of what we did was interviews. And what had changed, but not entirely has changed in, in that period from when I was in high school to when I started working in Complex, was celebrity culture and access. As I said before, you know, every artist or any major artist has thousands of fans, millions of fans across the U.S., across the world, and they want access to their favorite artist. They can't get it because there's only so many people. So artists do interviews with organizations like Complex, like Genius and other places that give them this sort of face-to-face -face with this artist, a Q&A, a making of, and all these kinds of things, right? Yep. That's the kind of culture and the coverage that you know music journalism became. It became writing profiles about artists, about emerging artists, about established artists. I wrote cover stories about people like Mac Miller where he talked to me about his drug addiction. Now that's not something he would necessarily have told the whole world on his Twitter feed or his Instagram, but in a private one-on-one -on -one conversation, you build a rapport, a person tells you a story, you can relay that story into a narrative, bring that to the audience, right? Yep. But one of the things that Complex, I remember I did a lot was when I did an interview, my plan was basically, yeah, I have like four or five questions. It's like, you know, someone is on a press run, their new album is coming out. They come to the office or I get them on the phone or I go see them. And it's like, oh, I have five questions about your album. Oh, tell me, where'd you make this album? You work with this guy. What do you tell me about the single? And then the rest of the interview is me asking, hey, what about that guy you have beef with? Who's this girl you're dating? How many drugs are you on? What about this thing? What about this thing? All these other things that had very little to do with the music and much more to do with the lifestyle and the image and essentially the celebrity culture of music. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of coverage is and has kind of always been. You know, you mentioned it too. You said, oh, you know, a music site. And it's funny that you also said a gossip site. That's not the way I had initially saw it, the business when I got into it. But when I actually worked in it, I realized it's true. That's kind of the stuff that people gravitate towards. So how can a music journalist stand out as a music journalist? Oh, well, yeah, that's the thing I want to say about Genius. So when I worked at Complex, that was kind of the thing, the way I approached things. And, you know, I still try to do things that were like music oriented. But when I got to Genius, I realized something had changed in the media landscape in the past few years. And one of the thing was a lot of artists stopped doing interviews. People like Beyonce and Drake and other artists, they realized that they could control their own narrative 
and they don't need publications to access their audience. They can just go on their social media feed, talk about what they want to talk about, promote what they want to promote, and not have to deal with the journalist who's trying to ask them a tough question about, hey, what about these allegations or what about this negative story that you don't want to talk about? So that's kind of has changed where I think more even younger artists and even emerging artists have kind of realized that the leverage of media representation has changed. But the thing about Genius, and I think that makes us really unique, is that we're a music brand that's actually about music. What I mean by that is, you know, when I talk about our show Verified, and let me, you know, this is our number one YouTube show. It's our flagship YouTube show. And it's essentially an artist comes, they talk about their song, they do basically an acapella version of their song, and then we ask them specifically about each lyric, like, oh, what did you mean by this line? Or what inspired this line? And how did the beat come together? And where did you record it? And all these questions. And Genius is a brand. Everything we do is actually about the music. Our editorial coverage is actually about, here's the lyrics on this album, and here's what these lyrics mean. Our verified show is about, here's an artist talking about their song, how they made the song, what inspired it, what it derived from, when it was made, how it was made. And I think I was initially a little bit surprised and even a little skeptical. I was like, oh, look, I wonder how the audience will respond to this, because it's true, the gossip stuff tends to get more coverage and more debate and discussion. People like to do this, you yeah. know? You see this on Twitter all the time and you see this on social media where everyone is talking about someone got into a fight or this guy got into some scandal that has nothing to do with the music. That is, to me, is all gossip culture, it's all celebrity culture, and has nothing to do with music. So at Genius, it's kind of easy for us because a lot of the brands that people think of as our competitors, even places like Complex where I work, it's like, I look at their stuff and I say, man, you did an interview that's barely even about music, that barely even touches on how did this music get made, what inspires it. Now, I think for a lot of people, and for us too, if the music deals with the controversial topic or a public topic, for example, if an artist publicly has a breakup with their significant other, and now their new song or their new album is a heartbreak album, and they're talking about how their heart got broken, well, then to me, it's relevant and fair to ask an artist, okay, what's up with that? Like, how does this relate to that? Or to even just write about it and say, well, you know, this artist said this in the song, and it sounds like they're talking about this, which was reported on maybe a gossip site that they were going to court being sued by their ex or they're having this argument on Twitter with their label and things like that. So for us nowadays, the stuff that we do at Genius is all music-centric and music-focused. And it all starts from where we started. We started as a lyric website. We actually look at the lyrics and then derive our content. I think a lot of other places look at their social media feeds and then derive their content. For us, it's the other way around. Would you say like a startup, a person who wants to start in, in music journalism, start with do, still doing music lyric reviews and critics? Or how do you think they should get into music journalism? Oh, well, I don't think, like I said, uh, criticism is dead. Yeah, criticism, yeah, for sure. Like, like in terms of reviews, I mean, more review side or... Yeah, I think if you're a user and a young person breaking in, the game is so different than the way it was when I got in. And what I mean by that is when I was a kid, I looked at it and I was like, man, you know, when I was in college or when I was started working out, I was like, yeah, I want to go work for those big places. I want to be at places like Vibe. I want to be at a place like Complex, Rolling Stone or Billboard and all these big names and stuff like that. Nowadays, the value of those brands has gone down so much and... 
even the market share that they have has gone down so much. If you're a young person trying to break in nowadays, I think you need to establish your own brand. And if your brand is big enough, the big names are going to come calling. It's unfortunate, but it's true. When people look at a new person to hire and stuff, they're looking at resumes, they go, oh, let's see. Oh, this person's resume, not that great. And then they see their Twitter and it's like, oh, but he's got 20,000 Twitter followers. Oh, she's got 25,000 Instagram followers. Even for a graduate, you say that they'll still, like everything they're saying now, they're going to look for that even for a graduate who wants to break in. Yeah. Into the, into, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's just sort of the reality of it. But to me, it also gives a lot of power to those people because to the young people, because there are certain people. And again, I look at the needle drop. He's not a great person or I don't really like his stuff, but he's a good example of the pathway that he took to now that he's a full time music critic. That's his job and it pays his bills. And there's a lot of other things about him, but he's associated with the alt-right and all these other things that I'm not advocating for. But the point I want to make about that is that you can do something independently. If you start your own YouTube channel or if you start your own uh, Instagram feed or, or whatever it may be and establish yourself, there's a chance that you can become your own entity because there's kids these days. You know, I said this all the time, too, especially about like social media and things like that. We have a social media team. We have two people that work on it, Cam and Teresa. They're both great. I work on the team as well, of course. I manage them and I deal with some of the stuff. But the truth is, nothing, no idea that we come up with will ever be as brilliant as some high school kid sitting in class who's bored and writes a hilarious tweet that gets 300,000 likes or 300,000 retweets. You know what I mean? Yeah. All these professional brands and all these people spending all their time trying to do it, all this curated feed. And meanwhile, there's some teenager just doing it kind of on the whim. So that's what I mean. Like, if you go that way, there's the chance that it can work out. And I think it's worth pursuing it that way, where you have to establish your own brand. And, you know, the challenges of all writers and all artists is to find your own voice. So you got to go out there and strike out on your own. And nowadays, the idea of I'm going to get a staff job and work at a place like Rolling Stone, work at a place like even a place like a GQ or really longtime established brands, that stuff is drying up by the day, you know. Media, everyone knows, is in a... The Rolling Stones even recently got sold, I think. The publication recently got sold. So, yeah, it just shows that they're not as... The brand isn't about, the, I guess, the leverage in, in someone's career. Yeah, it's still, all that, it's the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah, all that stuff is gone. So, nowadays, you can strike out on your own and go make your own thing. And, hey, you can make your own brand and be your own thing. So that's the thing I'll tell young people is that if they want to break in, if they want to start doing that, go make your own voice, go make your own noise. And we're in a world now where it's not quite a metocracy, but it's enough where, I'm sorry, not a meritocracy, but we're in a world where you might get noticed and you might be able to make your own thing. And maybe, I mean, maybe not enough to make a full-time living out of it, but Enough where you can get paid for being yourself, for being the person you want to be and not have to have a boss, not have to go be an intern and get coffee like I did or do all those things. There's Maybe there's a way around it. I'm not sure if that's what's going to happen, but what I do know for sure is that there are fewer and fewer worthy media jobs left to get. And mm. fighting for those roles seems like a sort of a zero-sum game because you might get the job at Rolling Stone that you always wanted, but who knows, Rolling Stone, is it going to still be here in five years? Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't know, you know? Yeah, I guess, no, I totally relate. I guess until those new starters get to the point where the, you are, where you can actually access well-known music artists, what are some of the sources of truth 
that that can access for them to get like to be credible to be seen credible like where can they find the information around artists until they get to the point where they can actually directly interview and get those inside our q a's well you know if you want access to an artist you can get it and the place is not to start with you know, it's okay, it's fine, If and I still dream of this too. Look, I've been in the game for years, I still haven't gotten an interview. I'm waiting for my Kanye interview, you know? I'm waiting for my Jay-Z interview, I still haven't gotten those. But that's not where it starts. If you're a young kid looking to start, go find a young artist who's looking to start, who you think has the potential to be a big star. This is the same thing that happened to me. Again, when, like I said, look, I always dreamed of interviewing someone like a Jay-Z or a Kanye. I haven't gotten those interviews yet. But when I started out, and this is when I was in Complex and stuff, I saw artists like Kendrick Lamar in 2011. I was like, this guy's music is amazing. He's going to be a big star. I saw artists like Wiz Khalifa in 2010, and I was like, this guy's going to be a big star. I saw you know, people like J. Cole, people like The Weeknd, people, just so many artists that I was like, these guys are going to be stars. This is my favorite music. I want to talk to these guys. And yeah, you're right. It's hard to go and be some kid some publishing somewhere on your own blog and try to get the biggest artist in the world. But you don't have to get the biggest artist in the world. You just have to get the next biggest artist in the world. The artist who's on the same level or just maybe even a level removed from you. So now I'm at the point where, yeah, I'm an established writer. I've been in the game for a long time. People, you know, I have my own reputation. People know me. But again, when I was lesser known, I was interviewing the guys who were once lesser known, like a Kendrick Lamar like a J. Cole, like an ASAP Rocky. Now those guys are international stars and there's young kids who are dreaming like, oh man, if I could just get an interview with Kendrick Lamar and maybe, you know, it's a high school kid like the way I was looking at it and saying, man, that's who I really want to interview. They might never get a Kendrick interview just like I never got my Jay-Z interview. But that doesn't mean they can't interview the next Kendrick Lamar, the next Jay-Z, the next artist who's coming up. So I always say, man, like I always try to find the next artist, the young artists who are blowing up even earlier this year, I think a good example, one of my coworkers, he was the first one in the office who was telling us about this artist, um, XXX Tentenacion. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's quite a controversial figure. But it was just an example of like, and he was a, one of the younger, younger people on staff. And he was like, yo, I think this guy's music is going to blow up. And I was like, eh, you know, if you say so, I don't, I didn't fully see the vision, but I was like, cool, let's interview him. If his stuff is blowing up, talk to him. And, you know, we did an interview with him. And now that dude, you know, we did it back in like early this year in February or whatever. And it, was, it wasn't that big a deal when we did it, but then it kind of blew up. And now that artist is a bigger deal. And now getting an interview with him is like, oh, wow, you got an interview with XXX. But back then he wasn't nobody. Nobody was trying to interview him. So when we got him, it was like, oh yeah, you guys want to interview me? Sure, I'll do it. You know what I mean? So artist fortunes change over time. And I would tell young people to find the young artist that you like. Find the next thing that's going to blow up. And you know what you want, too. This is the other thing to me, too. This goes back to, again, like I said, when I was in high school, I remember liking a lot of music and looking at it and saying, man, I wish there was a different type of artist that there's a lane that exists and no one could fill it of a conscious guy who had dope beats but could rap well and had a little bit of street cred but not really. And then Kanye West comes out and is exactly that guy, totally fills that lane and becomes this big star. So if you're a young kid and you're like, look, I like the music that's out now, but I know what's missing. I want to hear someone do this. And then someone comes out and actually does that. Go find that guy. Go interview that guy or that girl. That's what you got to go do. Yeah. Would it be even worth like 
specializing in a specific genre like is that worth doing or do you think you have to just be a bit broad and just try to to find the next artist you think is going to be the best or because obviously like, as a writer you want to do something which means like your what you like or what you're passionate about because that's going to strengthen what you you know write about so what, what are your thoughts on that? well to your point i think it's all about the passion i mean let your gut guide you and don't do something especially when you're young you don't have to do it for the sort of business or because you know your boss is making you do it you got to follow your passion so i mean you look for me rap has always been my passion i have a passion for music overall but rap specifically so that's the path that i chose that's not the path for everyone everyone has their own thing but overall i would say nowadays one of the trends that i've seen in music and what i've seen with uh just music the way it's become it's become more playlist oriented so music is becoming increasingly genreless not entirely genreless. It always irritates me when the artist is like, don't call me a genre. I'm, there's no genre. And then it's like, oh, yeah, dude, I know what genre you belong in. You're, you're just an R&B artist or you're just a rapper. Yeah. I know what you are. But overall, no, I, I think increasingly there are fewer and fewer and the, the lines are way more blurred than they've ever been in terms of what genre is anything. All of music as a whole has been infected by sort of the virus of, of hip-hop music. But then again, at the same time, pop music especially has been sort of the undercurrent of it comes from dance and EDM and there's a lot more mixing and like R&B and hip hop the the lines have become very blurred of like every rapper wants to be a singer every singer is a rapper all these kind of things are going back and forth so yeah I mean I don't think it has to be rigid like the way it kind of was for me when I came up but I think the thing to stick to is whatever as a young person you're passionate about and you feel strongly about you said that, and I was just hearing a bit of your other podcast that you did last year. You called yourself a trend spotter, given that we're on that point now. So, how do you go about finding trends? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, the thing about trends, I'll always say, man, is this three makes a trend. I think a lot of people always reach where they notice one thing happen, like they have one big thing happen, and then they see two other minor things, and it's a trend. And I'm like, that's not a trend. A trend is when three things happen, that's a trend. So, a good example of this to me was I worked on a piece earlier this year that I edited about the rise of Latin trap. And, you know, to me, it was like I had one example. Everyone knew this summer. Everybody heard Despacito. Of course. You know, Everyone knows about that, yeah. of maybe all time. Right. So that's a big record and that's cool. OK. And then I noticed along the way that there was another song that was pretty big, but not quite as big as Mi Gente from J Balvin. And this is actually a few a couple of months ago, actually before the Beyonce remix actually happened, when I think that got on a lot more people's radar. But these are two big Spanish language songs that were charting in the US. That's like a trend, that's the starting of a trend, but to me that's not enough. You gotta get the third thing, right? So I waited until, you know, I was like, that's kind of the idea in the back of my head. I didn't see a place for it to work. And then a friend of mine played me an artist named Bad Bunny, who is, although he's not as popular in the US, but he is a huge artist in the Latin world, and he's a Puerto Rican Latin trap artist. And then I looked into him and then I started looking into that scene and I say, wait, now there's enough juice. Now we have enough, three artists. We have a huge song from a legend of Daddy Yankee and Luis Fonsi for Despacito. We have another big hit with Jay Balvin and his song Mi Gente. And there's another artist now, there's Bad Bunny. And underneath Bad Bunny, there's Ozuna and there's other guys in the scene. And I was like, okay, now you have something. So the one of the things about trend spotting always is you got to find at least three artists or three songs 
to make something a trend. That's to me is the easiest way. A lot of times when people will tell you a trend and they'll name you like, you know, it's like, you know, I was having this thing in the office. We were like, oh, it's the trend of Afrobeats. And I was like, oh, you know, because Drake did it and Wizkid and this other person. And I was like, yeah, but Wizkid is only famous for doing a Drake song and Drake already did it. So basically you don't have three songs. You have one song. You just have Drake. And that's not a trend. You just have a bit, one big artist doing one big thing is not a trend. If you have three artists doing a trend, even if they're three mid-sized artists, then you have a trend. So to me, I'm a very strong proponent of the rule of threes, where you don't have a trend if you don't have at least three people. That's pretty, that's pretty solid advice. Like, I really liked how you explained it as well, so thanks, man. Yeah, no doubt. In saying that, like, you've covered some of the trends now and the, the, a bit of the landscape for DC, but can you elaborate a bit more about what the current music climate is and what, and I know you talk about a lot of the artists trying to create their own platforms, but can you summarize an overview of what you think the current climate is with the artists and the music scene and music publishing as well? Yeah, I'd say the current climate is pretty exciting. I'm 31 years old and I always assumed that by the time I got over 30, the older I got, and I know this to be true, the older you get, the further removed you are from the center. Because to me, you know, music in general is a youth-oriented thing. It's from like people from ages 15 to 25 is like the prime time of like loving music and being so into it. And the older you get, the less and less kind of enthused you are and the sort of jaded and kind of disinterested you become. But I'm 31 and I'm still super excited all the time for the music that's coming out. So the overall thing, I think the most important conversation that's happening in music right now that affects all music across the platform is streaming. We're into what they call, what they've been dubbed the streaming wars. I don't think it's much of a war, but okay, it's called the streaming wars. And you know, last year was I think the first year in since like 1999 or something where the music industry actually grew their revenue. And almost all of that growth in revenue was attributed to the growth in streaming. So what's happening and the debates and the conversation that are happening around streaming is where it's at. And again, going back to my point about young kids, you know, the Generation Z and the millennial generation, all those, you know, I think they make up 70% of the Spotify audience. They make up a large streaming of, of the streaming audience, whether it's Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music or Pandora or whatever, or SoundCloud, whatever you're using. So to me, the new wave for everything is happening on streaming. And this goes back to my earlier point about music becoming a bit more genreless is because we're not quite in the album era anymore. We're in the playlist era where people are making playlists and they're consuming music that way. And that is why you can have a playlist that certain has a certain vibe, but can cross various genres. That's what this goes back to my point. You know, this is why it's kind of genreless. Is you make a playlist and you might have a dance song with a hip hop song, with a pop song, with a rock kind of song, and it can all kind of just live together in one place. Something like that wasn't really possible. It was possible, but not quite the way it is now, and it's not easily accessible. So what's happening on the streaming side is. To me, very exciting. It's what I always dreamed of, which is, you know, I hopefully will get to the point where you can just inject music into your veins, which is what I'm, I'm looking forward to. You know, because again, it goes back to a lot of my older friends that tell me, oh, you know, it's not like buying CDs. And I'm like, I don't want to buy CDs. I don't want to go wait on a line. I want to hear the music right now, this very second. And, you know, streaming, it's weird to me because, again, I didn't grow up really buying music. I bought some music, but I mostly grew up downloading music. But nowadays, especially as I'm older and I'm less interested, I don't have the patience or the time 
to maintain what was once a vast and very immaculate you know, MP3 library where I titled all the songs specifically and made sure all the credits were correct and did all this stuff where it's just like, I'm just like, oh man, who the hell cares? Just give me the song, oh, it's there. Okay, cool, one click, it's on my phone. Press play, let's go. That's where music is right now. That's the battle that's happening. And streaming, it's not the complete picture of what the streaming economy is gonna be isn't quite here yet, but we're getting so close. I think by the end of 2018, we'll be 100% there. Right now, it only feels like we're maybe 30, 40% of the way there. And it's very clear who the big players are, who's got the most at stake, and how things are shaping up. Well, um, yeah, I guess I want to say that this there's the completely opposite side of, you know, hardcore music fans in terms of people still buying vinyls. I'm not sure if, if that's still the case in America. Oh, yeah, no, people do buy vinyls in the U.S., and I don't think they're hardcore music fans. I think they're pretentious douchebags, oh, okay? <laughs> it, it irritates me to no end. One of my favorite stats I ever read about vinyl is that 50% of the people who buy vinyl don't own a vinyl player. They can't even play the record. So don't tell me you're a music fan because you bought it. You're only a music fan if you play the music and listen to it. And the best way and the easiest way and the most accessible way to listen to music, to engage with the sound of the music, is on streaming, not on vinyl. So I don't want to hear about vinyl. It drives me crazy. It's a very strong opinion. I appreciate that. I just, <laughs> you know how you spoke about the current climate of music. How do you think Genius and a lot of the media publishers are playing part of that and streaming? Well, streaming is a big part. Well, actually, you know, I didn't even get a chance to talk about this, and I did want to mention it too. You know, when I first came to Genius, my initial job was not dealing with social or with editorial. The first thing I came on to do is work on what we call the Fact Track Project. And a Fact Track is if you go on Spotify, and if you go on basically any big hit song on Spotify, and it, I don't know if you've used this, if you have an iPhone, I don't know. Internationally, I'm not sure how it plays in every... I think we're in most countries, but not Japan for some reason. Right. But if you go on Spotify and you press play on a song, you'll see the lyrics pop up on the screen with little facts. It's kind of like the pop-up video show from the 90s. I don't know if you're old enough. I haven't seen this before, to be honest. I'll check it out for sure, yeah. Yeah, well, listen, if you have Spotify and you have the iPhone, it'll definitely show up. Internationally, the rules are a little bit muddier, but that's the initial product that I came on to work on. And that was what I worked on for most of last year is writing fact tracks. So when you press play on a song, the lyrics pop up on the screen and facts that, and this is what I was writing, was like facts about the song or about the artist or about the lyrics themselves play on the screen with it. And to me, I mean, the first time I saw the product when I was interviewing for the position and I was like, do I want to work at this place, Genius? What have they got going on? Let's see what it is. And they showed me that and I saw it and I was like, wow, I need to work here because that's cool. That to me is one of the most innovative things that's happened in music consumption. Our CEO, Tom, you know, he was talking about this not that long ago and he made a good point. He said in the 80s or 90s or whatever, they introduced the CD Walkman, the Discman, right? And the display went is a little thing that says what track you're on. It doesn't give you the name of the track. It gave you the number and it gave you how much time had elapsed and how much time was left, right? That was the little thing that was on it. Then came the iPod. And then the first iPod had the actual name of the song, the name of the artist. It had how much time had elapsed and how much time was left. Then came the iPod Color and everyone's phones and things like that. And it got to the point where it had the cover of the album. It had the name of the song, the name of the artist, how much time was elapsed. That was all there was to it. Since then, there hasn't really been an update to the display of music while you're consuming it. 
and really fact tracks, and this is not an exaggeration, is really the first innovation in that. So when you go on Spotify, you'll still see the name of the song, you see the name of the artist, you see how much time has elapsed and how much time is left, and you see the album cover, but then it flips and you start to see the lyrics along with the song. And then you start to read facts along with the song. And that's just, it's a unique musical experience that you cannot have anywhere else. If you go listen to Apple, Apple Music or Tidal, Pandora, Spotify, none of them have that product with them. And Genius is powering that. Now, Genius would love to power it for every music streaming service, and hopefully we, we can do that one day. But yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing where it's like, there's so much more opportunity to me and to Genius of places to insert knowledge, places to bring people information about the music that they love. And streaming is going to enable that. Because now you have something that, like I said, is people are used to it being a static thing. It's just a picture of the album cover and the cover doesn't move. It never changes. It's just that. Well, why does it have to be that? Why is, you know, one of the things that I do miss from the vinyl era, the CD era, all those things, because I remember as a kid buying CDs and reading the liner notes. Liner notes were cool. They were, I remember buying the M&M show and in the liner notes were hand, it wasn't actually handwritten, but it looked like his handwriting, you know, the lyrics to the album, to all the songs. It had the credits, it had where the songs was made and all this other information. And I'm like, and now, you know, it's 2017, there's more information than ever before and we have more access to it. And yet when it comes to music where it seems like people can't get the access, you know, it frustrates me even Spotify, I think, isn't great at this. It frustrates me that I can go on Spotify and listen to every Eminem song, but it won't tell me who produced the song. You can't even look. You can't. There's no way to find it unless you go and watch one of the fact tracks. And we always make sure to put this in there like, hey, this song is produced by such and such person. That's the kind of stuff that I think the future of streaming is really going to get more innovative and more creative and give us more information. And Genius is very much... Uh, we're very adamant at, at trying to be at the forefront of that, trying to bring you what we call music intelligence, music knowledge to the forefront because people are consuming music. There's no doubt about that. How do you make sure that the fact tracks are discoverable though, on Genius? Well, actually, you know, fact tracks, they play automatically if you have Spotify. And, you know, like I was saying before, a lot of the fact tracks are based on if you go to the original lyric page and go to the annotations that the users and the community wrote, a lot of those facts are from there. But again, we have a product, like we said, we have a website that not everyone knows how to navigate, not everyone knows how to discover. Now, we've taken that information from our, that our community is putting together, our loyal, great community, and then we flip that into a fact track on Spotify that's now being professionally curated by an actual writer and editors who are cleaning it up and making it presentable. And now we have Spotify playing it automatically for users so they don't even have to click anything, it just shows up for them. And now that information, all that knowledge that was once buried deep on our site is now being just sort of spoon fed to the perfect audience who wants to consume this because, hey, look, if you're listening to the song, why wouldn't you want to know what the exact lyrics are? Why wouldn't you want to know more about the artist, more about how it was produced, more about where it was made? That's who wants to hear about it, right? Yeah. Is Spotify like giving more weighting the fact that you're adding these fact tracks on to the songs? No, not really, because the way it works for us is we tend to do the fact tracks on the most popular songs anyway. Right? right? If a new Taylor Swift comes, song comes out, a new Eminem album comes out, if a Post Malone song is blowing up, that song is getting a fact track. And that's why I say, if we're at the point now, 
and this wasn't true last year, but now we're at the point where anytime a big hit song is out, we have to do it. And we're actually contractually obligated with Spotify. I mean, it's a part of our contract. Like, we have to do some power, some of their biggest playlists, like Rap Caviar and Today's Top Hits. So those are their two biggest playlists. So if it's a big hit song, it's probably going to be on that playlist. And if it's on that playlist, we definitely wrote a fact track or we're going to write the fact track. You know, it's only a matter of time. So, yeah, our focus for that has always been to doing the most popular songs. And then in the meanwhile, building a back catalog of classic songs. But classic songs tend to be the most popular song. People are always going to want to listen to Michael Jackson's Beat It. You know, people are always going to want to listen to the Rolling Stones or the Beatles and things like that. So the, the back catalog is also a part of that. I mean, the, like, it's interesting, though. Like, if you guys are focusing on the most popular songs and classics, but then for a new journalist, they want to, it's probably more probably to focus on, you know, the upcoming. Wouldn't it be better for them to, you know, do fact tracks for them? And that way that can help, you know, give leverage to those artists and potentially even give more weight on Spotify and those other streaming sites? No, not really. Number one, our, you know, you talk about young journalists. I mean, the Spotify product is made exclusively in-house at Genius. We don't do freelancers. You know, it's only the people on staff. And that's not an opportunity for any young journalist to really, you know, we've hired some people, but it's more for an established writer. But, you know, we do cover young and emerging artists too, but they have to get their views up. So if the views are big, and look, again, this is what I was saying before, the thing that I was saying about young journalists trying to come up, you know, I say, hey, look, make your own thing. You can blow up. That's also true of young artists coming up. There's kids who are blowing up right now. There's a kid, TK, or guys like YBN Namir who are like, shooting videos on YouTube or making songs on SoundCloud, and they're blowing up. Not overnight exactly, but in a couple of months. They go from all of a sudden no one knows who they are, and three months later they have a few million views. And look, when those people get on that radar, and they're on our editorial radar, and they're on our staff, just a staff of people who are obsessed with music and you know looking for the next hottest thing always, once that stuff gets on our radar, look, we're going to cover that stuff anyway. We like to bring in artists. There's a lot of artists we've brought in, too, for our show Verified. Again, this is the same thing that I'm telling young kids that they can do. We do it on our side, too, where, you know, we bring in a young artist like a Trippy Red or a Star Lord or guys who aren't big stars yet. But we're like, yo, we like this one song, and I see it's blowing up on SoundCloud. I see it's blowing up on YouTube. Let's do a video with them. Let's see how it goes. And a lot of times, those videos for us, they do better than the established stars who you might already know or you might have heard of already. But some of these kids who you're like, well, who is this guy? This kid is doing, you know, they're putting numbers on the board. So that, what you're saying, doesn't exactly apply to Fact Tracks. No, thanks for clarifying that. I guess, yeah, it's really good to know. I'd like to sort of wrap up in terms of really getting an overview of your day-to-day responsibility as senior executive editor. And also really, if you can also conclude with some tips on growing a loyal audience, both in terms of a publication and your own audience, if that's possible. Yeah, for sure. My day-to-day... I just got this executive editor role a few months ago, so I'm stepping into it, getting used to the ebbs and flows of it. You know, I think I'm trying to focus less on the day-to-day things and trying to be a little bit more involved in sort of the big picture ideas. Overall, I think one of my most important roles, I mean, this I think is more for someone who's established the way I am in an organization, is just, you know, facilitating communication. We're a small team of genius, but we're a growing team. And You know, we increasingly have more people. We have a design team. We have a tech team. We have an expanding video team. We have a community team. And they're all small teams. They all mostly have four or five people with the exception of video, which has about, I think, 10 or 12. So every department has their own little thing. 
And we're at the point where we're growing as a company and we're growing as a staff. But at that time, it's extra important to facilitate communications between many different departments to make sure everyone's on the same page and everything clicks the way it's supposed to. So yeah, I mean, even in my day to day, you know, I spend a lot of time dealing with the video team, trying to assist them and trying to help with the sales team and making sure our branded stuff is on point. And the real thing, my focus on all that stuff is to make sure I find what's important for my team on the social side, the editorial side, and getting the information from the other teams and bringing it to them and making sure everyone's on the same page. That's a lot of what my focus is outside of just like editorial strategy, social strategy that I think comes with anyone who's in the position that I'm in. Does that make you happy and disembodied that you doing that aspect of the job? Yeah, you know, it's, it's fun. I mean, to be honest, I'm more motivated and more enthusiastic about the strategy stuff because I always get excited with just, I have an idea. I'm a, you know, I like having ideas. So I love when it's like, hey, let's try this thing and see if it works. And I love when we say, let's do this feature and then we do it and we put it up and the audience loves it. Or I say, hey, let's write this tweet or write this post. And then I see it blowing up on the site. I see the audience reacting to it. I see that's the stuff that really excites me and motivates me. The thing I was saying about the communication stuff is I think a byproduct of anyone who's in a managerial role. I think it's important. I think it's essential, in fact, to relay the information between and be sort of a liaison between many groups of people, especially because for me, I have a, you know, the team that I manage, they're a little bit younger than I am and they're a little bit green to the game. I've been working in this business a long time and I sort of, you know, I think I have a better understanding of the ebbs and flows and a better understanding of what can and can't be done and where you can assert yourself and where you just kind of have to accept the lay of the land, sort of. So I think that's the kind of stuff that, it's a new skill and I like learning new things, so that's kind of exciting, but it's not something that I feel 100% adept. You know, I don't think I've, I'm still growing into that is what I mean. I don't think I'm great at that quite yet. I understand. I'm just a bit more on the social side of your day-to-day. What, what are you more involved in, in terms of the strategy and audience development? Oh, audience development is a good point. And oh, actually, to go back to your earlier point about growing a, a loyal audience, yeah. yeah, that's something that I've been really, really honing in on on the social side. You know, I've always been involved in social, but never never like this. And when I say involved in social, I mean, I like to maintain my own Twitter presence. You know, I use Facebook and Instagram and things like that because that's I just kind of have them to have them. And I like to consume them too. But, you know, Twitter is the one that I personally like to use a lot. And I, I consider that a part of my voice and my sort of professional voice and all that. But, you know, for us... On the social side, when I look at the strategy and I look at the stuff that we do, the thing that we're always trying to drill down, and this is a a different type of communication that we try to have with the audience. And what I mean by that is our brand is not about, as I was stressing earlier, our brand is not about gossip, beef, feuds, all this nonsense. That's not what we're about. We're about Music, and if you can read it on our Twitter, on our bio, on our IG, Instagram bio, it's, we said music intelligence. And that's one of the things I've been trying to really drill down with our team and with our just entire social strategy. That's what really separates us from everyone else. Everyone will say, happy birthday, it's Drake's birthday, happy birthday, Drake. Everyone is going to say Eminem's album is coming out. Everyone tweets that, everyone covers that, Right. What we do and what we're all about and what separates us is we try to bring a knowledge musical angle to that. 
it's not enough to just, you know, and we still do some of that stuff of just like, hey, you know, the Eminem album is coming out, but we try to draw out, okay, what is the music angle? Where is the knowledge angle? Okay, yeah, he, there's a new ad for his site, that's true. I mean, there's a new ad for his album, but hey, that ad actually has a reference to this lyric from this song. Hey, this is the anniversary of this album, but this album, did you know that the credits were written like this, or did you know that this song was sampled, this other classic song, and things like that. That's what we're always trying to do, is drive home the idea of music knowledge beyond just the surface level. Understood. What are some of the tips, like, if, yeah, just in terms of growing, if, if, there's, if there's, like, a starting person in the industry, what are some tips for growing a loyal audience? I would say the first thing you should do, if you're, especially a young person, you should write out what your vision is. What are you actually about? Where do you see your brand or your voice? What is it about? It's a difficult question to ask yourself. I think a lot of people, look, for a lot of young people, they don't really know, which I understand. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be. But, Definitely. you know, you can maybe look at people and say, well, I, I like this person and I want to be like this person, whoever you admire. That's a good place to start. But, and I think when you start doing it, and you start actually getting in the mix, you'll see what you're good at, what you're bad at, what you're comfortable with. But so I would say starting out, you got to do it, but you got to get to the point where you have enough examples to, to make a decision of like what it is you're trying to be about and then trying to drill down on that idea by maintaining a sense of consistency. Even for me, and this is something I'll say on a personal side. You know, I've, like I said, I've had Twitter a long time. I've had Twitter since 2009. I love using Twitter. I tweet all the time. But for the most part, for many years, my Twitter was mostly the main thing I talked about was rap music. Here's new albums coming out, basically extension of my job. And that was the stuff that I would talk about. His artist is coming out. And I like other things. So maybe I'll talk about the NBA finals or the Oscars when they're, you know, whatever is going on at the time. Right. But then last year, increasingly during the election and then definitely after the election, I realized, man, I have a platform. And I don't have a ton of followers, but I got some, and I'm not going to use it on talking about music anymore. And since then, I've completely changed it. And the only thing I ever tweet about now is politics, 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 and basically anti-Trump every single day, all day, every day. You know, I wake up in the morning and I'm tweeting, you know, I'm furious all the time. And I'm not the only one. I think a lot of people have done a similar thing. Not generous on the same boat, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, that's the kind of thing where... It's funny because since then, I've actually increased my number of followers and a lot of my longtime followers and friends see me and they're like, hey, look, we appreciate what you're doing on your social. You're keeping us informed and you're really on top of the news and we appreciate that. That's a, a very high compliment for me, especially because that's not what my main job, that's not even my job. I do that essentially almost as a hobby, although it's a very unhealthy hobby, at least for my blood pressure. So again, I kind of changed what my brand was about, but I maintained a level of consistency about a specific issue is what I'm known for. I might delve into other things, but you gotta be known for something. What are you the best at? What are you all about? You gotta pick something. It can't be I'm about everything. No one can be about everything. Then you're about nothing. That's 100% because there's so much you can talk about. Like even besides politics, even in the music scene, I'm sure there's a lot of artists, a lot of angles you can take and perspectives. So I think that's a really good way to some end the note. I'd like to thank you for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Oh, for sure. Thank you for having me. I had a nice time. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. 
Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.